0: You may be seated, and if the children can come on up for the uh, children's message. All right, you remember what we're doing. We are going through the Nicene Creed, which is what we say every Sunday in the service. And this week, we're going to be looking at a very important section. Okay, so repeat after me For our sake, he was crucified. Under Pontius Pilate, Pilate. he suffered death and was buried. buried. On the third day, he rose again again. In in accordance with the Scriptures. Salvation comes to us because Jesus is both man and God. When he died on the cross, he took away our sins. Jesus's friends were sad and afraid. They didn't understand what Jesus had to do. They hid in a room from Friday until Sunday. And that's when something really amazing happened. Do you know what it was? The resurrection. The resurrection. Yes, Jesus rose from the grave. We call this the resurrection. He was there with the apostles, the other disciples, and family, and he was fully alive. People from all over Israel saw him. They spoke to him. They walked with him. They even sat down at the table and they ate food with him. When Jesus died and rose again, he defeated death completely, totally. Now you and I and anyone who follows him can live forever with God. And we don't even have to wait until we get to heaven to experience this powerful and exciting life. It begins now, as soon as we start to follow him. So do you want to follow him? Mm -hmm. Me too. All right, let's say it one more time. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again. On the third day he rose again. In accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures. Well done. Alright, go ahead and go back to your seats now. Amen. So I invite you to open up your Bibles and your orders of service to the epistle reading, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first 14 verses. In sum, the apostle Paul's concern in this epistle Is about loyalty. He's interested in ensuring that the apostolic ministry will continue to the next generation. He's concerned about the ministry of the Word, about fanning to flame the gift of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, may we not neglect the gift of God. May we, through the power of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, nurture and develop and guard this glorious gift that has been deposited in us. So rekindle our hearts with a love for you, through your blessed Trinity. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our, our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Some may be called to pastor, but all are called to pastorally care. Our epistle shows the value of shepherding the flock. The value of the work of the minister and the work of the ministry. And the best way to start is with the end in sight. We're given a portrait of what it looks like. You see, this is Paul's final letter and he knows it. This letter comes to Timothy and it comes to us too with poignancy and urgency as Paul expects to die soon. Listen to what Paul says in verse 6 of the fourth chapter. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's preparing to die. He's preparing to leave. And this is his final letter in the Bible. Like Paul, I stand here at the end of an age... And I speak tenderly and lovingly to you. Do not be alarmed. I don't expect to die anytime soon. Yet I stand here at the end of an age and the beginning of a new. I may not be able to remember your tears, but I'm learning of them. I may not have experienced the life of this church since the beginning. But I'm learning of its powerful story. You have a new pastor, new ministries, new members, and even a new vision. But as we learn from the Apostle Paul, the work of the minister and the work of the ministry must always be rooted in the gift of God. I'm privileged and honored to partner with you in this ministry for you are a church that values the ministry of the Word. I have witnessed this in many ways, but notice with me one. Look at how similar the second line of All Saints' mission statement is with verses 6 and 7. Fan to life the fires of faith in those whose first love in Jesus Christ has cooled. That's what All Saints' mission statement says. And notice how similar it is to verses 6 and 7. For this reason, fan into flame the gift of God. I've frequently reflected upon All Saints' mission statement. How are we to fan to life those fires of faith in those whose first love for Jesus Christ has cooled? Well, our epistle reading provides the answer to this question. And like the Apostle Paul in verses 13 and 14, it is my aim to call, to call us, this church, to commit to this ministry of the Word so that we might recover the gift, the gratitude, and the call of God. And that we might have this unashamed courage of the gospel for what? To suffer and to serve in this holy calling. So we are to recover the gift and the gratitude and the calling of God so that we might have this unashamed courage to suffer and to serve in this holy calling. Now, when I preach, I seek not only to expose God's truth and to communicate it clearly and to do it worshipfully, but I also seek to answer the questions that emerge in the congregation as you interact with the text. That's why I always ask you to open up your Bibles or your orders of service so that you can then begin to wrestle with the text. And I can hope to answer some of your questions. This is application, isn't it? And so in the remaining minutes, I would like to attempt to do this, to answer the questions that emerge from our text, to focus on the significance of the ministry of the Word in our attempt to fulfill this holy calling. And so my first question is this, who is this epistle for? Indeed, it is addressed to Timothy, but is it just for Timothy or is it for God's church too? I submit that this epistle is not only pertinent for Timothy, but all the members of God's church. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's salutation is like that of his other letters that had circulated the churches. Notice how he introduces himself. He introduces himself with his apostolic title. Just as he included this in his first letter to the church at Galatia, he includes this in his final letter to Timothy. He spent nearly a chapter and a half describing the authenticity of his apostolic authority to the church of Galatia. Why? Because they had abandoned the gospel that he had once delivered. Now, here in this letter, Paul immediately draws Timothy to the fact that he is an apostle. Why? Why? because he has been given the authority by God to deliver the gift of God to the world. You see, this letter is not just for Timothy, but for God's church, too. But also notice how Paul concludes this epistle in chapter 4, verse 22. The final verse of this epistle, he says, The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. This you is not singular, it's plural. Paul writes not just to Timothy, but to the church. And I submit that this letter is especially important for all saints, particularly at this time. Why? Because it's about a shepherd speaking to his sheep and flock. There's great counsel, wisdom, and guidance from a shepherd. The shepherd loves his flock. It is his duty and joy to provide, protect, and to promise his flock. How? Through the ministry of the Word. A shepherd is to pastorally care and to teach. And this is what I prayerfully endeavor to do for the flock of all saints. My second question is this. What is the significance of God's gift and Paul's gratitude? What is the significance of God's gift and Paul's gratitude? In verse 3, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve. You see, this simple sentence signifies a meaningful relationship A meaningful relationship with God, with God's people, and with Timothy. In Thanksgiving, Paul describes that he and Timothy share a common inheritance and an authentic faith. Paul writes of how he inherited the faith from his ancestors in verse 3, doesn't he? And he shares of how Timothy inherited his faith faith from his grandmother and his mother in verse 5. There's a humble thanksgiving that that fills his heart, and this signifies the authenticity of his faith. You see, Paul's exhortation, his imprisonment, his life, and his relationship with Timothy testify to the authenticity of his faith and Timothy's faith too. Paul says in verse 5 that he is reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. It was first in his grandmother and then in his mother, and now, he says, he is sure that that it dwells in Timothy as well. You see how faith must become personally ours? Thousands have been satisfied with the faith of their parents to discover only disappointment. Like Paul and Timothy, we must be strengthened and confirmed in the faith so that It is wholly and personally ours. Paul writes this at the end of his life. He sees it more vividly than ever before, both concerning his own faith and the faith of his long-held partner in the ministry of the gospel. Yes, the best way to start is with the end in sight. And we do that this morning. The great 20th century, Pastor and theologian Carl Barth once said, everything must begin with Jesus, not some general principle. And everything must end with him too. We must start with the end in sight. We must start with Christ. And we must have faith and love in him. We read in our Old Testament reading the great text in Habakkuk. But what the lectionary did not include, and I say this grinningly, is the most important part of the passage. Chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. This is what God said to Habakkuk after he groaned and moaned and asked, How long and why, O Lord? He answers Habakkuk in all his frustration And he says the just shall live by faith. The righteous will live by clinging to the trustworthiness of the promises that are in Christ Jesus. If we wish to have an increase of faith like the disciples in our gospel reading. Then we must build our hope upon Christ. We must build this church upon the sound doctrine of God's word written and revealed that's what the Apostle says. He says, follow me. Follow me in what you have heard. Follow these sound words, he says, that you have heard from me. This is how we follow Christ. It's through the ministry of the Word. Now look with me at verse 6 and see how Paul's gratitude provides a reasonableness. His gratitude is linked to his faith. And it makes sense of things, doesn't it? It makes sense of what we are to do. We are not to neglect the gift of God. Did you notice that? He says, For this reason, fan into flame the gift of God. We are not to neglect the gift of God. Indeed, God's church has been entrusted with a good deposit, as we read in verse 13, for which she must guard. All saints, we will never be able to guard this good deposit unless we be filled with the faith-begetting gratitude that we see in the Apostle in this passage. You see, gratitude is a sure sign of our faith that gives us cause to fan, to flame God's gift. He says, for this reason, fan into flame the gift of God. And now we turn to the second part of that question. What is the significance of God's gift? What is the significance of the gift of God? What is it? How are we to nurture and how are we to guard it? Well, we are not explicitly told what it is. But I submit that it is the faith and love in Christ Jesus, for which Paul mentions in verse 13. It is the mustard seed faith that Christ describes in our gospel reading. It is the faith of the just that God speaks of in Habakkuk. It is clinging to the trustworthiness of the promises of Christ. And Christ, the, promises of Christ. the gift of God is the good news of Christ, you see. And we should never neglect it. We are to nurture and to develop it. Not the objective news of the gospel, but our love and our faith that is in Christ's goodness. The gift of God is the unashamed courage of the gospel. It's the unashamed courage of the gospel that has been and is made known through God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Our passage is Trinitarian. We profess each week the Nicene Creed. This is the economy of grace. This is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is the gift of God. It is through the Blessed Trinity that the church has been given the apostles' teaching of sound and secure doctrine. The doctrine of the Gospel. We're not only to treasure it, but we are to fan into flame an unashamed courage in it so that we suffer and serve in our holy calling. You see, Paul is to work, not on his own accord, but in and through the triune Godhead. And we are to work, God's church. His household of faith, we are to work not in our own accord, but in and through the great work of the triune Godhead. You see, this economy of grace, as our early church fathers would describe, it comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which is where we get the word economy. And it simply means the arrangements and the dispensations for which God has administered his grace. And it's been done through the power of the Father, through the love of the Son, and through the self-control, the enabling self-control of the Holy Spirit. And isn't that what Paul says? Fan into flame, the gift of God. He says, For, the, for you have not been given the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. He's describing the very... Outpouring of the Trinity. This is the glorious gift. And it's rooted in, or the ministry of the Word is rooted in, the triune Godhead. You see, the gospel is not just knowledge, it is relationship. And this is why Paul says that this gift of God is in you through the laying on of hands. He says this not to convey a meaningless romantic notion of apostolic secession that emphasizes only structural unity and not theological unity. No, he... Remember, in Galatians, he spends a chapter and a half describing his apostolic credibility. Why? Because they abandoned the pure message of the gospel. So this is not just to... Emphasize a structural unity, there is a theological unity as well. He does this to emphasize the pure gospel, not just the message of it, the relationship of it as well. If we wish to have this relationship, if we wish to have this relationship of the gospel, then we must have the pure message of it as well. We must know what we have been saved from and we must know what we are saved through. You see, we are saved through God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And the gospel is not just to be shared with unbelievers. No, it's to be shared with believers. It's by feasting upon God's word that we fan into flame the gift of God. That we fan into flame our faith and our love for God. You know, the gospel must never be neglected. It must always be before us. Our knowledge and our affection of Christ must be nurtured and developed and guarded. It's not like that of a book that can only be read occasionally and then placed on a shelf. No, our preservation is our utilization of the gospel. And our utilization of the gospel is our realization You see, how? By committing ourselves to what God has given us. He makes it easy. He lisps to us. He condescends. He speaks our language. He gives us the word revealed and the word rewritten so that we might fan into flame our faith and our love for Christ Jesus. Yes, we must commit ourselves to the ministry of the Word and the ministry of the Godhead, the triune Godhead. And my final question concerns calling. Who is called? Is it simply a particular calling or is it a general calling for all the elect? Notice where Paul takes us after he reminds Timothy to nurture God's gifts so that he will possess an unashamed courage of the gospel that is willing to suffer and to serve, he takes him to the supreme suffering servant, our Lord and our Savior. In verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You see, he takes us to the very work of Christ. He takes us to Christ himself, the image of the invisible God. I'm reminded of what Peter says in his epistle. He says that we ought to rejoice in our suffering in so far as we share in Christ. And a few verses later, he says that if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. It's the unashamed courage of the gospel. That is what we are to have. Those white hot embers of the gospel. That's what to be, is to be in our hearts. We're not to live in shame, but in Christ's glorious work for us. Paul takes Timothy and the church to their saving calling in and through the work of Christ This is the one that we read in verse nine, who has saved us and called us to a holy calling. That's what it says. And Paul further describes the salvation through the appearing and the work of Christ in verse 10. So verse eight and verse nine and verse 10, we see that Paul takes us to the very work of Christ the salvific call, the most foundational call, the most meaningful call. There's no greater call than to be a servant of Christ. And there's no greater title, not an apostle, not a preacher, not a teacher. There's no greater title than to be declared declared a saint in Christ. The just shall live, the righteous, the saints shall live by faith. This is the general call for all of God's elect. And then we read in verses 11 and 12 of Paul's particular call. And that he was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Which is why he suffered as he did, he says. But just as he suffered, he also found much strength in suffering. Because he knew who to believe in and was confident that God was able to guard the deposit for which he had given to him until that blessed day. Paul's particular calling was rooted in his general calling, the gospel calling. You see how Paul's salvation in verse 9 correlates with his appointment in verses 11 and 12? So is the same with you, child of God. Whether you be a physician, electrician, or a secretary, your vocation is rooted in your saving call. Whether you are a father or a mother or a grandmother or a friend, your identity is rooted in your saving call. So if we are to fulfill our calling, whether it be as a church or as individuals, then we must be rooted in God's word. We must feast on him. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit through his word. There is no exemption for being a student of Christ. And if we be a student of him, we must be a student of the Holy Scriptures and the faith received from the apostles. Yes, let us not neglect the nurturing of our faith and love in Christ and let us guard it. Let us be filled with that faith-begetting gratitude in guarding the good deposit, because that's how we guard it. And let us have the unashamed courage of the gospel to suffer and to serve in this holy calling. Amen.